0: You're listening to the Quince Podcast.
1: Almost five and a half months after India reported its first case of coronavirus from Kerala on 30th January. The country has now crossed a dreaded milestone. India reported more than a million COVID-19 infections on 16 July that have caused 25,000 lives so far as of that day, including that of doctors and health workers. From a few thousand cases before the lockdown, the infection rate has been soaring to almost a 30,000 spike on some days since the unlocking of commercial activities and relaxations of restrictions, making India the third-worst hit country in no time, only behind the United States and Brazil. While the centre on different occasions claimed that India has flattened the COVID-19 curve to a great extent, that is still largely being disputed by experts. But amid the sombre mood, the silver lining from some states like Delhi has been the rising cases of recoveries, the increase in testing and hospital beds. But what does touching a million infection mean for a tightly populated country like India? And how did we manage to come to this point despite implementing one of the strictest lockdowns in the world? In this podcast, you'll hear from Dr. Shahid Jamil, who's a virologist, and polio warrior Dr. Matthew Varghese, an orthopedic surgeon who runs a polio ward at Delhi's St. Stephen's Hospital. You're tuned in to The Big Story, the podcast where we dissect the headline-making news for you. And I'm your host, Shorbury. The news around coronavirus has been daunting to say the least. Recently, on 14 July, the World Health Organization Director General, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus did not mince his words in his message to the world, when he said that there will be no return to the old normal in the foreseeable future and that things are expected to go worse and worse if leaders and countries don't follow the right direction.
0: Let me be blunt. Too many countries are headed in the wrong direction. The virus remains public enemy number one, but the actions of many governments and people do not reflect of this. If governments do not clearly communicate with their citizens and roll out a comprehensive strategy focused on suppressing transmission and saving lives, if populations do not follow the basic public health principles of physical distancing, hand washing, wearing masks, cuffing a ticket and staying at home when sick if the basics aren't followed there is only one way this pandemic is going to go it's going to get worse and worse and worse i want to be straight with you there will be no return to the old normal for the foreseeable future
1: but is india on the right direction Before we hear from experts, let's first look at where we stand right now. On 19th May, India crossed the 1 lakh mark in coronavirus-related cases, followed by 2 lakh cases on 3rd June, 3 lakhs on 13th June, 4 lakhs on 21st June, 5 lakhs on 27th June, 6 lakhs on 2nd July, 7 lakhs on 7th July, 8 lakhs on 11th July, 9 lakhs on 14th July and now... 10 lakhs on 17th July. The number of cases taken to record 1 lakh new cases has progressively declined, indicating that the outbreak is still spreading rapidly in the country. And that kind of increase in cases also means that the pandemic is rapidly spreading to new districts. According to a report on the Economic Times, the number of districts with more than a thousand cases of coronavirus has risen 20 times. There were five such districts in late April and on July 16th, 116 such districts were recorded. But should we be focusing about the number 1 million or try to break it down in terms of infection rates and case fatality ratio? What does crossing a million infections mean for a country as large and as populous as India? Virologist Dr. Shahid Jamil gives his take to the quint. 1
2: million or 10 lakh is Is just another number. Uh, The the way the outbreak is spreading, uh, you know, today we have reached 10 lakh, tomorrow we'll reach another number and, you know, next week we'll have another number. Mm -hmm. Uh, So let's not fuss too much about numbers. I think there are a couple of other important points here. One is the rate at which infections are increasing on a daily basis. So we are roughly adding about 30,000 infections across India, which is about 3% uh, daily rise is happening. Uh, Now, if we continue with this trend, then the numbers will keep going up, up and up. Uh, But the other thing to understand is that this is a countrywide number. Every place in the country is not increasing at the same rate. There are places, for example, Delhi is showing a downward trend now. But then it also means that there are other places that are are growing faster. Uh, So, and the the other thing you mentioned is how do these numbers mean? What do these numbers mean in the context of India as a country? Yes, we are a country Mm -hmm. of uh, 138 crore people. uh, So, you know, what is 10 lakh in, in 138 crores? Uh, if we look at it from that point of view, fine, but uh, remember that these 10 lakh cases have been added in just the last six months or so, actually less than that. Uh, So it's, it's really the period which is worrisome. If 10 lakh cases were added over a whole year, for example, or over two years, one would not worry that much about it because, you know, it would not overwhelm the capacity of our healthcare system and all hmm. that. Coming to the death figure, uh, which is about 25,000 uh, deaths uh, right now, cumulative deaths, uh, we are looking at a case fatality ratio of uh, about 2.5%, uh, right. which is uh, about half of the global average. There is another way of putting it. And just like you said, cases for a country like our size, cases per million people, for example, which would be low for India, even the death rate per million population is low for India. The death rate right. is somewhere around 18 or something for the per million population. Right. But there is, a, there is a very interesting uh, observation here that that death rate is not just for India. If you look at countries across South Asia, Southeast Asia, you look at Pakistan, you look at Bangladesh, look at Nepal, Mm. Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, all of them have death per million population in single or double digits, usually below 20. Mm. But compare that to the death rate in uh, U.S. and Western Europe, and you'll find numbers for 400, 600. Belgium goes up to 800. Uh, so there is definitely something happening. It's there is I, I very strongly believe that there is a biological reason for this.
1: It's certainly hopeful that India's case fatality ratio is recorded to be much lower than the worst-hit countries, even with the infections rising and. Dr. Matthew Varghese also adds to Dr. Jameel's analysis and observes that it's been the case with most of the South Asian countries.
3: Right. This is happening, as Dr. Jameel said, the entire Southeast Asia region, the numbers are, all of them, less than 30. All of them, I think Pakistan is around 25 or so, right. um, but uh, all the others. And we don't know the reason. But look at Vietnam. How many deaths? You know, what a... Uh, close, compact population, living close to each other, no social distancing is there and yet their deaths are so low. So there is something beyond the numbers of not recording, not diagnosing, not testing. There's something beyond that which we do not understand and we hope we understand it sometime or the other. There is some biological reason. There is no reason why uh, Belgium should be in 800s and UK should be in 600s and uh, US should be now close to 500, 400 something. That is right. the number. Why should those numbers be so high? And why should the numbers Africa? Mm-hmm. No one talks about Africa. Look at the numbers. Right. Africa. The African numbers are also low. And even South Africa, which is one of the highest numbers, there also the number is less than 100, 79 per uh, million population.
1: But coming back to the number of infections, Maharashtra is the worst affected state, having recorded 2,84,281 cases on 16 July, followed by Tamil Nadu and Delhi with 1,56,369 cases and 1,18,645 infections respectively. Maharashtra and Tamil Nadu now constitute 48% of the country's total active caseload, according to the Union Health Ministry. Delhi was initially headed for a disaster with an unusual daily spike in the number of coronavirus cases for consecutive days and had also taken over Tamil Nadu on June 22nd. But the state's revamped plans has helped stabilise numbers to an extent. Increased testing and also home delivery of pulse oximeters and oxygen concentrators to patients in home isolation has shown a sharp decline in deaths as per the Delhi government's report. But while the capital is stabilising, other states such as Karnataka has overtaken Gujarat to be the state with the fourth highest caseload. And according to the Indian Express, compared to the last week of June, when Karnataka was detecting between 350 and 450 cases every day, in just the first two weeks of July, the state added almost 29,000 new cases with an average of more than 2,000 cases per day. Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, Orisha, Jharkhand, all these states, which are also essentially the ones with a high number of migrant labourers, are also seeing a spike in cases. Bihar reported almost 6,500 new cases in just the last one week. Putting an immense pressure on its health system, the state also decided to bring back lockdown restrictions between 16 to 31st July, although only in urban areas. And Bihar isn't alone in taking such a decision. Assam and West Bengal have also extended their lockdowns, Uttar Pradesh has imposed lockdowns only on weekends. But the problem with all these lockdowns has been that the minute it's lifted, the situation catapults to what it was earlier. So, is it helping for these states to be imposing lockdowns mindlessly? Dr. Jameel says India should have prepared more rigorously to brace for the infections during the lockdown period.
2: So, uh, we have to understand that a lockdown is, you know, gives you time to prepare. Lockdown is not Uh, a curative in this case. So, yes, lockdown really helped uh, in the sense that uh, the doubling rate of infection slowed down. Uh, When we started the lockdown, the outbreak was doubling at about five and a half days. Uh, When we ended the lockdown, it was about 14 or something. Today it is, uh, you know, 20 plus. So the lockdown helped in that sense. I think where we could have done better in the lockdown is to have prepared ourselves better. Uh, We did prepare, uh, but we could have done much better. Uh, And what we did not foresee is the social dimension of the outbreak. We were so keyed in on the health part of it that we forgot to look at or understand the social and the economic dimensions of it. So by the time, uh, you know, those two months were over, the lockdown was becoming something that was giving only diminishing returns. Right. Uh, but, you know, even beyond that, I, some of these lockdown strategies I don't really understand. In parts of UP, for example, there's lockdown only on weekends. Now, right. what does that mean? Is the virus active only on weekends? What is the logic behind that? I don't understand this.
1: So are the increased number of coronavirus cases the result of a failure of a health and social structure rather than the failure of a lockdown? The rigorous first few weeks of the lockdown when India had a marginally low number of infections only managed to have a temporary reign over the transmission while the economy and the daily wage labourers took a serious hit. And Dr. Varghese says that lockdown extensions will not help. It will only adversely impact the economically weaker sections. He says what India should do is look after its vulnerable people rather than imposing a lockdown on an able-bodied population. The
3: whole purpose of lockdown was, as Dr. Jamil said, to prepare us.
0: Hmm.
3: The first two or three weeks were ideal for preparing ourselves for that. Uh, prepare our staff, prepare our infrastructure, prepare our healthcare. What we are seeing today, 10,000 bed facility, 5,000 bed facility, that was to happen on the initial stages. We are exactly. having it now. So, is there a problem of bed? No, a lot of them are empty. Um, you, if you go around hospitals, a large number of beds are lying empty. They, we have enough capacity and more. To admit patients. Okay, so this was to be done early on, without closing down the other services. Right. That is critical. You have no idea how much of suffering the person with other diseases have had to undergo. Every one of them with a chronic or an acute or even a person with disability. I've just completed a, a survey on it. And I found, you know, the complaint that they said, 90% of them said problem of food. unrega, hmm. income generation. And their problem is food. Their problem is finances. Their job problem is jobs. It is a social problem that is paramount. Therefore, right. the first, I might appear to be you know, digressing, but I'm coming back to the point. The lockdown was essential for preparation. Two, three, four weeks of clear end point to be given, and that was it. Now lockdowns are meaningless as far as I see it. If you look right. at the simple logic of it, when we locked the entire country down, there were 540 cases in the country. Today, right. we have a million cases, and we have opened up city traffic in Delhi, city traffic all over. You see right. the numbers that are there. So. <laughs> You may flatten the curve for some time, but that's it. Best is protect our vulnerable. Make facilities for our vulnerable. Who are our vulnerable, our diabetics, our elderly. Make sure your campaign paradigm shift must happen. Your campaign paradigm should be open up the cities. Do not have any more lockdowns. You're going to have starvation. You're going to have hunger. You want to protect them from that. You need to give them income. You need to build our economy. You need to do that. But mm. while we do that, we can't let our elderly, we can't get our vulnerable. So your paradigm of campaign for protection should go mm. from the normal healthy whom you're policing and it's become a law and order problem. Exactly. Those vulnerable who are sitting back homes. How do we protect them? People don't know. Mm. I see today morning, since morning, I was in the OPD in the morning, I saw four corona positive cases, four. And when they come to me, do you know what they do? First thing they do is pull the mask down. Because it is courteous (laughs) to talk with with your Mm. face revealed rather than hidden. That's our culture. So we need to get out of this. Please don't do that. Mm. I would have kept telling them, please keep your masks up. Please keep it. We need to get our protection for our elderly, for our vulnerable, and your paradigm for campaigns should do that.
1: But in all this, a sliver of hope has been positive studies around some of the ongoing vaccine trials. As more than 13.5 million people get infected worldwide, the hunt is on across different countries to find a cure as soon as possible. The two promising candidates right now are Moderna's vaccine and the one being developed at Oxford University. And speaking of Oxford, the UK research team there believes that they may have a breakthrough with their vaccine since they discovered that it could stimulate the body to produce both antibodies and killer T-cells. Killer T-cells are the ones which stay in circulation for years, providing immunity. And currently, there's a lot of talk about it amid fears of reinfections and the possibility of vaccines only providing a short-term protection. Dr. Jameel also highlights some points about how immunities work in our bodies. He also believes that there's no reason to be worried about short-time immunity yet.
2: It's the neutralizing antibodies that go down. But remember, that happens for every acutely infecting virus. Uh, The neutralization, titers go down, but, you know, people have a memory to prior infection. So when the next infection happens, the memory is recalled very quickly, and that leads to neutralization of the virus. The other important concept to understand is that whether it's with vaccines or with people getting reinfected, we're not worried about infection. We are worried about disease. And there is hardly any vaccine that gives what is known as neutralizing, uh, sorry, uh, sterilizing immunity. Sterilizing immunity would mean protection from infection. Most vaccines will protect you from disease. The annual flu vaccine that you take, it doesn't prevent infection by the influenza virus. It just prevents disease. Mm. So these are important concepts to understand. Uh, Another study on T-cells that has just been published in Nature, there was a prior study that came out in in the journal Cell. Both of those show that there are abundant T-cells that are made following Mm. infection. And in fact, the Nature study now shows that people who got the SARS infection in 2003 Mm. still have in them t cells that react to sars2
3: okay
2: so that's good news for t cell immunity right. even even people who don't seem to have gotten either sars1 or sars2 some of them show uh, t cell uh, signatures and these are possibly people who got infected by the common cold coronaviruses right so uh, i think a lot needs to be to be done, to be looked at. But so far, I don't think there is any cause for worry that uh, vaccines may protect for only short periods of time and all that. Let all the data come out. We are only six months into the outbreak.
1: We haven't really had time to follow patients. But all that being said, is India prepared to battle coronavirus until there's a vaccine? If you like listening to this episode, please subscribe to the Big Story playlist for episodic updates we have on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, GeoSavan, and most of the other popular podcast streaming platforms. For other podcasts, please log on to the Quinn website and check out the podcast section. For any feedback, shoot an email to podcasts at thequin.com.
2: Thanks for listening. Log on to the Quinn's website and check out our other podcasts.